anybody please start your visualization give you a bit more time to visualize the merit field and being surrounded by all the holy beings So let's generate our motivation. And recalling the plight of all of us in samsara, even though at this particular moment we may have a much better situation than many other beings. Still, we're all in the same boat of going up and down in the three realms due to karma and afflictions. And our great fortune is that we found the teachings that show us the path out of it. And the thing to do now is to practice those teachings. So our mind puts up many roadblocks that create hindrances. And sometimes there are external hindrances too. But all of that is the material with which we practice the path. So it's not that first we get rid of the hindrances and then we engage in Dharma practice. Dharma practice is the process of working with the internal and external hindrances. And so let's generate the joyous effort to do that knowing that causes bring results. And if we create the causes, they will bring the concordant results. So if we practice with joyous effort, slowly we will progress along the path. And so with a bodhicitta motivation to spur us along. Let's learn what that path is and how to generate joyous effort. So it happens very often with practitioners that when we face a problem, uh, either inside or an external problem, we think, now I can't practice. 
Yeah, I I don't feel well, or I have too many responsibilities, or uh, it's snowing today, or you know, I don't, you know, my mind is unhappy, or uh, you know, somebody pushed my buttons. Uh, so all of these things are interfering with me practicing the Dharma. Yeah? So, gee, if only all these hindrances would go away, then I could really sit down and study and meditate and really get somewhere. That's what we think. Okay. Well, the good news is you don't have to wait to practice the Dharma. All these hindrances are what we practice with. Okay. In other words, the meaning of practicing the Dharma is to work with the afflictions, to subdue the afflictions. Yeah. What happens when we have external hindrances? We're sick, we can't get a visa, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, then our mind gets unhappy and our mind creates more problems for ourselves. We get upset, we're angry, we feel sorry for ourselves. Those mental states, yeah, learning to work with those mental states is the meaning of practicing the Dharma. Okay, we tend to think practicing the Dharma is you put on robes, you have your mala, you have your uh, prayer wheel, uh, you do circumambulations, you do prostrations, even though your mind's who knows where, you count gazillions of mantras. We think practicing the Dharma is all this external stuff. That is not practice unless our mind changes when we do it. Otherwise, making prostrations, you can go to the gym. Yeah, it costs more to go to the gym. Making prostrations is cheaper to get in shape. But that's not why we do prostrations. Okay? So it's very important to remember this. Yeah? Instead of thinking, oh, oh, I don't feel well. Oh, yeah, you don't feel well? Okay, lie down. You can still think about the Dharma. You can still visualize the Buddha. You can still generate love and compassion and send those out to other living beings. Yeah. Having a stomach ache, having a backache doesn't prevent your mind from being in a virtuous state. What prevents our mind from being in a virtuous state is when we get upset about not feeling well, when we fall into self-pity, when we, uh, you know, use not feeling well as a way to get around doing things we don't want to do. That mind is what the hindrance is. Okay, the not feeling well isn't the hindrance. Yeah, that doesn't mean you don't feel well, so you have to stay in bed and sit up in perfect meditation position even though you don't feel well. No, you can lie down if you don't feel well. But 
lying down doesn't mean you don't keep your mind in, in virtue. Okay? And same thing with, you know, having an unhappy mind. Well, why, why uh, are we unhappy? Well, it's usually because we're not getting what we want. That's the number one cause. Okay, check that one first. Yeah, if it's not that one, then then see what it is. Yeah, but usually my my uh, experience is when my mind is unhappy and I don't want to practice. It's because I have some expectation of how the world should be and how I want it to be, and I'm not getting that. Yeah. So what's the hindrance? Is the hindrance the world just doing what it does? Or is the hindrance my high expectations and my getting irritated? What's the hindrance? Yeah, it's the mind getting irritated, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and what's the false expectation? That I should be able to control everything. But actually, before I control it, it should automatically be what I want it to be. So I don't have to control it. Yeah. Con- being con- controlling is this, is plan B. But actually, plan A is everything should go the way I want it to be from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah? Is, is that a little bit of a ridiculous way of thinking? Yeah, think about it. Yeah. And yet, we hold on to that. Yeah. Should be the way I want it to be. <laughs> okay, so that's why. You know the story about Lama Tisha watching the guy uh, circumambulate the stupa and then prostrate and then recite the text. And Lama Tisha keep telling him, oh, that's nice, but you should practice the Dharma. The whole point is practicing the Dharma means transforming the mind into something virtuous. Okay? So, yeah, I don't know about you, but when my mind is unhappy... It is, you know, it's just like uh, Shanti Deva said at the beginning of chapter six. Yeah, the fuel for anger is an, an unhappy mind. Yeah. So why is my mind up ha- unhappy? Like I said, it's usually because I'm not. <laughs> things are not happening the way I want. Yeah. And that's based on my wrong conceptions of how the world is should be. Okay, so what's the way to change that? It's not to get angry, it's to change my mind. Now, I may have to be assertive after I've calmed my mind down. I may have to be assertive and act in an appropriate way, you know, to move things along. But I can do that without being angry. Yeah. 
Of course, it's so much easier to be angry. But it's so much more miserable to be angry. Yeah, because when we're angry, we're not unhappy. We're not happy. We're miserable. Yeah, if we're able to lessen the anger, then our mind is happier. Yeah, then, you know, if you need to push or do something, you can do it. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the real practice, and that takes time to develop, okay? Because we hear the teachings, we say, oh, yes, 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 that makes perfect sense. And then, yeah, something doesn't go the way you want, and we just go back to our old way of dealing with it. Yeah. My mom had a great expression. I don't know if your parents had this. Don't knock your head against the wall. Yeah? It's actually quite profound when you think about it. I didn't appreciate it at the time. But, you know, I I think I really should do words of my precious mother because there's a lot of things that... That she said when I was growing up that actually have a profound Buddhist meaning. Okay, like don't knock your head against the wall. Why? Because the wall is going to win. Yeah, don't bother getting angry at the world because conventional reality is going to win. <laughs> yeah. Things are what they are. Okay, so here's where joyous effort comes in, is that it is what gives us the ability to meet the occasion. Yeah? And we've seen that what prevents us from meeting the occasion, yeah, of course the afflictions, but specifically the three kinds of laziness. Okay, just wanting to lie around with a little dash of self-pity. Yeah, self-pity is so nice, isn't it? Yeah, you can kind of curl up and have your comfort food and your blankie and, yeah, your, your, uh, yeah, your own Buddha bear. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And the second one, keeping ourselves very busy, running around, feeling important because we are running around doing all sorts of things. Yeah. Everything except look at our mind and transform our mind. And then the third one, the big one, well, all of them are big, but this one, just feeling discouraged. Yeah. So yesterday... Uh, you know, when somebody said, you know, is there somebody here who's, who doesn't feel, doesn't ever feel discouraged? And I can't remember, you know, actually thinking like that. But it, it, I've thought about it, uh, you know, afterwards. And I think, you know, what, what has really kept, helped me a lot is just thinking about causality. Yeah. And that effects arise from causes. And if you create the causes 
and you create the conditions, the effects will come. Yeah? And so what's the use of feeling discouraged? Yeah? When they call it the infallible, yeah, infallible cause and effect, yeah, infallible karma and its effects, it means that causes and conditions bring results. So if we know that, what's the sense of getting down on ourselves or thinking the path is too high or anything like that? You know, it's just we haven't created the causes yet. So what's to get depressed about that? Yeah, it's like you want to be a a millionaire, but you don't want to go to work. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. So, okay, what I got to do is create the causes and conditions. And if I do that, slowly the effects will come. You know, you plant the seed, you water it, you fertilize it. You don't have to dig the, the seed up every day to see if it's starting to grow. Yeah? You just are happy creating the causes. And then your life goes on. Yeah, and then slowly results come. And sometimes it takes a longer time for different seeds to ripen, but they will when the conditions come about. Okay, so we have to overcome, you know, the the hindrance, the three kinds of laziness. And we're at the section now where uh, Shantideva is going to tell us how to do it. Okay. So, we're, we're almost at that section where he's going to give us four points, you know. But what he's telling us now is that too. So, verse 23. Yeah. Even doctors eliminate illness with unpleasant medical treatments, so in order to overhaul, overcome manifold sufferings, I should be able to put up with some discomfort. Okay? In other words, this verse is attacking our preference to being wimps. Okay? We, yeah. So we think... Especially with a war going on, we think bravery is, you know, I've got my AK, whatever it is, and I'm going to be brave and go to war and shoot down the external enemy, and that's how I'm brave and putting up with discomfort. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. From a Buddhist viewpoint, we went through those verses already. Shantideva says, those people are going to die anyway. Why are you bothering to kill them? Yeah, and killing them is not really, you know, getting you any closer to awakening. It's getting you further away. Okay, so that's not bravery. Yeah, bravery is learning to deal with our own discomfort. It Bravery is not, you know doing that external thing that makes you look, you know, like Rambo. Because you may wind up going to the lower realms. Whereas somebody who's really brave, 
who's going against the afflictions, yeah, who's really thinking about the meaning of their life and the meaning of their actions, contrary to what society pushes us to do. You know, that person is the brave person, according to Shantideva. Okay? And that person will have good rebirths and progress along the path. Okay? So then that means we need to have a little bit of discomfort. And sometimes it's physical discomfort. You know, you have to sit in meditation position. Sometimes it's because your robe keeps falling down and you have to go like this. Wouldn't it be nice if this robe just stayed on? But it's not. (laughs) Okay? So, you know, and it's uncomfortable sometimes working with the afflictions because, you know, it's like you look at your mind and you see how your mind gets twisted up and stuff. And sometimes when you have enough space, you can look at that and say, my mind is really ridiculous. Yeah? Have you ever had that? And you look and it's like, what in the world am I hanging on to? Why am I so upset? This is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable seeing that because we think of ourselves as intelligent, yeah, good practitioners who understand and follow the Buddha's instructions. And then lo and behold, we look at our mind. And our mind is opposite of what the Buddha is teaching. Yeah. And then we're even further embarrassed because everybody else already knows that about us. And we're just seeing the the light, you know. Yeah. I mean, you live in community. It's true, isn't it? Everybody knows your degree of angry anger and how you show anger. Everybody knows what you're attached to and how you go about getting what you're attached to. Yeah, we, we're the only one who doesn't know a lot of that stuff about ourselves that everybody else sees, you know. They know when we are in control mood and we're going to control everybody around us. We just don't see it. And then then the light comes. Oh, yeah, I think I'm being a little bit controlling. Yeah. Well, no, I need to be because, you know, everything is going to fall apart unless I control it. Okay. And so then we have all of our regulations. Yeah. Turn the light switch off as soon as you go out of the room. Don't leave it on for two seconds. Put the spatulas here. Yeah. Clean up your mess immediately. Yeah. You know all of our rules. 
Yeah. We have a whole policy book full of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they're useful. They're useful guidelines. But what isn't useful is that we make them more than guidelines and we cast them in concrete. And so with our preferences and our way of thinking th- about things, how we go about getting what we want, we cast it in concrete. And then, of course, other people are not very happy when they encounter a concrete wall getting put in their nose. <laughs> and they say, huh, yeah, you take your concrete wall back. And then we go, oh, see, nobody appreciates me. Anyway, or whatever you do, you know, maybe you put two concrete walls because you're going to win the argument. Yeah. Okay. So the real Dharma practice is working with all of this and, and transforming the mind. Yeah. And learning to have, you know, it, we experience a little bit of discomfort. You know, you think of the situation of other people on this planet and the amount of discomfort we experience is so minor. And we experience it in the, in the process of practicing the Dharma. So it's worth it. Other people experience discomfort in the process of creating negative karma. Okay. 24. Yet the Supreme Physician does not employ common medical treatments such as these. With an, uns- with an extremely gentle technique, he remedies all the greatest ills. So the Supreme Physician is the Buddha, who is the greatest doctor to our mind. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't, uh, you know, pull our tooth out without any anesthesia or do surgery with, you know, uh, open heart surgery without uh, any anesthesia. You know, the Buddha is very gentle. The Buddha is not, the Buddha did not say, go out and give your body to the the local tiger. Yeah? Find the nearest tiger and donate your body. The Buddha did not say that. The Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, showed the example of how compassion works. That when you have very profound compassion, this is what you're capable of doing without experiencing great hardship. That's what the Buddha is saying by that story. We take that story of, well, the Buddha gave his body to a tiger. Uh, I should be able to do that right now, too. Okay, where is that thought coming from? I should be able to do exactly what the Buddha is doing. Yeah. It's like somebody in kindergarten who says, I should be able to plan uh, the rocket to, to Mars. Yeah, 
Can you plan the rocket to Mars when you're in kindergarten? I don't think so. Yeah, I'm beyond kindergarten. I still can't do it. Actually, I don't want to. But, you know, why do we put these shoulds on ourselves? Yeah. So it's very important, and I see this, I mean, the longer I practice, how important it is when we hear certain teachings to make sure we understood the point of the teaching correctly. And that's why it's very helpful to discuss the teachings with other people, to contemplate them ourselves and to discuss them with others, to make sure that we've understood the point correctly. Similarly, when we hear stories, we need to contemplate the story and talk about the meaning with our friends to make sure we understood the the point of the story correctly. Because if we misunderstand, we get really tied up in knots. And here, you know, what he said, Shanti is saying about the Buddha, with an extremely gentle technique, he remedies all the greatest ills. Yeah? So the Buddha gives us extremely gentle techniques to change our mind. Okay. Now, what do you mean extremely gentle techniques? Yeah? What it means is the Buddha knows that we can only do what we are capable of doing at, a, at one time. Yeah? And we are not always very capable of assessing what we're capable of doing at one time, you know, at a particular time. Sometimes we overestimate what we're capable of doing. Sometimes we underestimate what we're capable of doing. Okay, But the Buddha understands. The Buddha is not standing there going, come on already, you know, you should have those realizations. Yeah. Why haven't you found that tiger and given your body yet? Shame on you. If you're saying that to yourself, ask yourself why you're you're clobbering yourself in that way. My brother said something that that really stuck with me. He's a doctor. And, you know, so sometimes he, he works in radiology, but sometimes he's working with people who are dying. And sometimes there's a, a push to confront people who are dying and let them know you're dying. You know, you got to look at this and get your th- everything in shape and con- confronting them, making them recognize that they're dying. And he said to me, you know, people will, will understand that they're dying only when they're ready to understand it. And that really stuck with me when he said that, you know, uh, because people will do what, will take the next step when they're ready to take it. Sometimes our job is to cur- encourage them, to nudge them when they need nudging. Yeah. 
but not to set down a rule and push. Okay. And this is said by the great pusher. Yeah. You want somebody who pushes? Yeah. You're looking at her. Okay. So, but to, to really see, you know, you, you encourage, you nudge. And that's exactly what the Buddha does for us. He encourages, he nudges, he gives us the teachings, and then he leaves it up to us to practice them. Because he knows he can't make us practice. Yeah? So he doesn't knock his head against the wall. Yeah? And say, I've been teaching these beings for how many eons since I got enlightened, and they still don't listen. Oh, he's not going to waste his time with that. Okay? He teaches us gentle techniques. Yeah? That if we see what we're capable of doing, we put this into practice, then we get, we can take the next step. Okay? So it's like, you know, after my surgery with, with, you know, my hip replacement. Okay? So I had to learn to climb stairs again. Now, it's, you always like to, like, let's go up that, you know, there's stairs that are, you know, the, the usual standard height. Then there are stairs that higher. I want to start with the stairs that are higher. Ah, uh, that doesn't work so well when you've just had a hip replacement. You know, you got to start, you know. <laughs> my PT would bring out these these little platforms that were this big. <laughs> you know, practice stepping on those and stepping down and stepping on them and stuff. And then gradually increased it, you know. And I remember the first day I climbed the stairs at the, the hot, you know, in the, outside the PT department. I was like, I got all the way up the stairway. Now, how did I do that? By practicing with these small platforms that he kept putting there. Okay? So this is exactly what the Buddha does. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to, to nurture your mind and be satisfied. Oh, I, I got, you know... And when I was learning to prostrate, which you see I still can't do really well, yeah, I had to start with, you know, I started with the Chinese. Well, at first I just bent over. Then I, <laughs> I couldn't even get lower. Then, you know, to the, the Chinese ones that are this. Then I found a smaller one like this. Then Venerable Losang very kindly made something that was like about two inches and I mastered that. And then it was remarkable going from a two inches to flat on the ground was really hard. Yeah, those last two inches were really hard. And you can see sometimes I can't push up directly from the floor. I have to take an extra step in doing that. Okay? But you have to grow Gradually. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> because otherwise you try to bow and getting down is really easy. <laughs> you know, that part of the prostration is no problem. It's what you do after that. <laughs> yeah? Okay, 25. At the beginning, the guide of the world encourages the giving of such things as food. So here he's telling us all the gentle techniques that the Buddha teaches. Okay? So the guide of the world, the Buddha, encourages the giving of such things as food. Okay. So you start with the food you don't like. It's very easy to give that. Okay? I, I do so much charity at lunch. <laughs> you can have the chickpeas. You can have the black beans. You can have the cabbage. What's left? <laughs> you know? So, yes, I, I give all these things to everybody else. So you start maybe that way. Okay, later, yeah, you start to give things that you like. Yeah, thinking that other people may like them too. Of course, we don't know. They may not like them or they may be against the diet of the other person, but we start giving things. So there's a story about the Buddha who was dealing with one person, one lady who was very stingy. I think it was my previous incarnation. And had her practice giving a carrot from one hand to the other. Oh, I have to give the carrot away to my left hand. Oh, what suffering. Okay. And giving it back. And just to practice giving. And then pretty soon, you can give the carrot to somebody else. Yeah. Then you can maybe try an apple. Yeah. Then you can try the chocolate cupcakes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you give chocolate cupcakes to the people you love or the people you want to die? <laughs> They are so unnourishing. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's the meaning of passive aggressive. You, <laughs> you really hate somebody. Here, have these delicious chocolate cupcakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But um, so is it, uh, so the, at the beginning, the guide of the world encourages it the giving of such things as food, you know, and because food is the e easiest thing to give usually, you know. That's also why we offer water on the altar because it's easy to give, except when your water system goes off. Yeah, I was in Dharamsala one time when that happened. And then, you know, making... Offerings of water on the altar became much more difficult. Later, when accustomed to this, to giving food, one may progressively start to give away even one's flesh. But you don't go from giving away, you know, an apple to giving away your whole body. 
There's, there's many degrees in between that. Okay? So we just go gradually, you know, and give things away as we are comfortable doing it with a happy mind. And sometimes not, we have to nudge ourselves. Yeah? Because we, it, it becomes, after a while, it becomes so incredibly apparent when the mind says, but I don't want to give it, that you can't stand it. And then you make yourself give it. And as soon as you give it, it's like, what, what was going on that I thought this was so difficult? Okay, so one may progressively start to give more and more. Okay, so it's the same with keeping our precepts, you know, you start and then you, yeah, but you start with something that's a little bit challenging. Don't start with just doing with what you're capable of doing. Yeah, and it's that way also in, in, uh, in, um, you know, something I, I learned about starting the Abbey, is you have to start with very clear guidelines and very clear discipline. And then when you need to make exceptions, yeah, you don't start with something very loose and then try and make it tighter afterwards. People don't like that. So it's the same way with keeping your precepts. Yeah. Do a little bit more than you feel comfortable with and then but not too much more and then you can you know up it don't start with putting a straitjacket on yourself <laughs> but don't give yourself excuses either say this is the the difficult point isn't it yeah 26 at such a time when my mind is developed to the point of regarding my body like food, then what hardship would there be when it comes to giving away my flesh? Okay? So it's showing you build up the strength of your mind in terms of what you can give. And when your mind is really developed and you're not attached to your body, yeah, and you have some power over the death process, then regarding your body as food that you can give away very easily, then that makes sense. But before that time, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. Okay. So maybe somewhere along the line, you give a kidney something like that. I just was reading in our local newspaper that the um, the person who works, uh, I don't know her, she has a post in, the, in our local government. Um, she's the one who sends out the ballots and things. She's giving a kidney to somebody else. Yeah? And I thought, wow, that's really wonderful, that kind of generosity. Yeah, And so you build up to practicing generosity in that way. You don't say, okay, you know, where's that tiger? When you're not capable of doing it with a happy mind. Okay, then 27. 
having forsaken all transgression, there would be no suffering, and due to wisdom there would be no lack of joy. But now my mind is afflicted by mistaken conceptions, and my body is caused harm by unwholesome deeds. So this relates to the previous verse. When our mind is developed to the point of looking at our body, giving away our body in the same way as we would give away food, yeah, then, uh, you know, there's uh, there's not going to be any suffering. And when it says having forgave, forsaken all transgression, you know, what is it that causes suffering? Our negative karma. So when we you know, have better control over our body, speech, and mind, we don't transgress our precepts so much, then we're not going to have as much physical suffering. And, yeah, and then without having so much physical suffering, it's easier to give the body. And due to wisdom, in other words, as we learn to practice the antidotes and feel more, uh, and feel firmer in really living according to the Buddhist worldview and transforming our mind in the way that the Buddha teaches, so through generating that kind of wisdom, then there's not going to be any lack of joy in giving the body or doing some of these things that we're we're incapable of doing right now. Okay. But now my mind is afflicted by mistaken conceptions, so why do I have no joy if asked to, uh, you know, even give a kidney or, um, or you know, give a million dollars or, you know, who knows what? You know, wh- why uh, do I have no joy and think that, that the Dharma is so difficult? It's um, because my mind is afflicted by mistaken conceptions such as everything should happen the way I want it to happen. Yeah, and I should get everything I want. So, you know, when there's those kind of mistaken conceptions in our mind, uh, then our mind is not going to be very happy. In fact, our mind's going to be pretty miserable most of the time, because how often do we really get everything we want. And even we get what we want, how much are we satisfied with it? Yeah, this is what people are asking about the war in Ukraine. You know, Putin wants, uh, you know, Eastern Ukraine. Is he going to be satisfied with that? I don't think so. Yeah, he takes all of Ukraine. Will he be satisfied? I don't think so. You know? The way he's thinking, his idea of who he is and the place of Russia in the world, it's going to be difficult to find satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Okay, my mind is afflicted by mistaken conceptions and my body is caused harm by unwholesome deeds. So when I break precepts, when I uh, do the ten non-virtues, yeah. Then it often comes out as sickness, as discomfort, as pain, as, you know, who knows what. 
And also, just the fact that we have a body, even if you don't break one precept in this life, the fact that in previous lives, yeah, we, we have a lot of negativity that's coming with us, such that we took a body under the influence of afflictions and karma, means that we're going to have physical discomfort and sickness and aging. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just a given. But we, you know, it's so interesting. We think that somehow we can overcome it with our superior human intelligence. Yeah. We don't see birth as the cause of aging, sickness, and death. Yeah, we, we don't. And so you get, what's it called? Uh, cryogenics. When you freeze the body or part of the body in the hopes that medical science in the future will find a way to revive you and make you live again. As if the body is who you are and when they froze you, your mind was still in the body. I wonder, you know, at what point in the death process do they freeze the body? And has the mind left or is the mind there feeling very uncomfortable, frozen, like in the cold hells? Or has the mind left the body, in which case, even when you defrost the body and medical science finds the way to rejuvenate you, you know, that, uh, you know, your mind's going to be there. And it's apparently quite expensive to do that. And so some people cannot afford to freeze their entire body. So they freeze their head. Helpful to have a guillotine, I guess, here. And then they, I guess, I don't know what they do with the rest of the body. Probably burn it, bury it. And they just freeze the head because they think the head is the person because the brain is there. Yeah. Walt Disney's frozen. Yeah. He is one of the frozen, frozen things. Yeah. Can you imagine if they defrost him, the latest Disney movie? <laughs> okay, then 28. This verse is a very beautiful verse. So the previous verse was talking about us, you know, but now my mind is filled by mistaken conceptions, so there is a lack of joy, and my body is caused harm by unwholesome deeds, so I'm going to suffer. 28 is talking about the bodhisattvas, as their bodies are happy due to their merit and their minds are happy due to their wisdom. Even if they remain in cyclic existence for the sake of others, why would the compassionate ones ever be upset? So this is like how strong the mind of a bodhisattva is. Okay, so their bodies are happy due to their merit. So you accumulate a lot of merit, then, you know, it, it 
influences the body and you don't get sick as much when you attain well, there's different levels where different bodhisattvas can attain a mental body, you know, and when you attain that, then definitely kind of no physical pain. And these great bodhisattvas, their minds are happy due to their wisdom. When you uh, can directly perceive emptiness, when you can uh, directly perceive impermanence, then your mind doesn't have all sorts of unrealistic expectations because everything doesn't appear so concrete to you. So there's space to to play. There's space for flexibility in their minds. And so their minds are happy due to wisdom. And they can look at situations And even they look at the most unbearable suffering for sentient beings. They don't get depressed over it. Yeah. They realize that that is that the suffering, the misery, the dukkha of samsara exists because the causes for it exist. But it isn't a given because the causes can be overcome. And so if you overcome the causes, then you don't experience the dukkha. So they don't get depressed when they see their own suffering or if they, you know, their own dukkha or what other beings would consider dukkha. And they don't get depressed when seeing the situation of other sentient beings. Okay. So this thing of of personal distress that we so often fall into Like, I can't bear to see their suffering. Bodhisattvas don't have that. Because that personal distress is a hindrance to being compassionate. Because when we have personal distress and can't see, bear to see another's suffering, then we cannot help that person because we're too wrapped up in our own suffering. So bodhisattvas always have an an optimistic mind. And they don't expect in their optimism that problems are overcome immediately without creating the causes. They don't have those wrong expectations. Okay? So we, we like to think of miracles. Yeah? So our definition of a miracle is I get what I want without creating the cause and I get it immediately. Yeah. If you were watching a Saturday night Seder, you know, they arrived at the Red Sea, you know, with the Pharaoh's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And then miracle. Without creating the causes, the Red Sea opened. They walked through, the Red Sea closed, and all those other people died. I don't consider that part such a miracle. Yeah? But that, that's what we think of as miracles. Yeah. It has to happen quickly. Happening, taking a long time to happen is not a miracle. Yeah, it's immediate. 
So again, our impractical mind. Yeah. If things happen immediately, it's because a lot of causes and conditions were created in the past. Yeah. There's this talk, uh, one of the, the big uh, discussions in Buddhism is sudden enlightenment. Can you gain enlightenment suddenly? Okay. So we hear sudden enlightenment, we think it means, again, without creating the causes, you just sit down, you're a baby beginner, you don't even know how to meditate. You sit down, roll your eyeballs back in their sockets, and boom, you are enlightened. Yeah? And um, uh, Venerable uh, Shenyan from Dharma Drum, uh, mountain. He and His Holiness had a dialogue in New York many years ago. I don't know, some of you may have been there. It was really beautiful. Um, and this topic of sudden enlightenment came up. And Master Shen Yen explained that the meaning of sudden enlightenment is not you sit down and you get realizations. Okay, It means that it's uh, there's a couple of Things, how it, how it plays out. One is, it's your first baby glimpse of reality. And after you have that glimpse, then you have to go back and practice the gradual path to accumulate all the merit and to deepen the realization of because that, that little first glimpse doesn't, didn't last very long. And it probably isn't a direct perception. Yeah. So, but, so you have to go back and accumulate the merit and deepen your understanding of what you perceive to make sure you, you're realizing emptiness completely and you have the correct uh, emptiness. Okay. And then you get you so that so the sudden awakening is that first baby thing, and then you practice the gradual path, and then you get full awakening. Okay. And His Holiness was saying, you know, so that's what Venerable Shenyan uh, uh, said, Master Shenyan. Then His Holiness said, you know, there are stories. In, uh, you know, in the Buddha Dharma about people who attained awakening in this life. So we, we hear the story of Milarepa, you know, he's a good example. But then we also learn that in the early years of his life, he killed a lot of people through black magic. So how is that possible that he attained enlightenment in that life? And, and then there's, you know, other stories of, of other people. They're very rare stories. It's not common. But His Holiness explained that in that kind of situation, it's because the person in so many, 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 many previous lives have accumulated merit and meditated on emptiness that then all that merit, all the effort they put in in previous times with something re not requiring so much merit in this life, 
or so much effort in this life based on that huge store of merit and much deep meditation in previous lives, something small can like make the whole thing come together. But he says that's very, very rare that that happens. You know, most of us do the gradual path. So it's quite similar to, to what Master Shenyan said. But we always think we are the special ones who accumulated merit and studied and did all of that for five million lifetimes. Yeah. So we're the ones who are going to sit down and like that. Yeah. And then they will recognize us as Rinpoche's. And then you get to put on a hat. (laughs) And you get to wear brocade. And sit on a high throne. Whippy do. Yeah. Whippy do. You're really a. What do they say? Hot? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I love this because, you know, as their bodies are happy due to merit and their minds are happy due to wisdom. Yeah, even if they remain in cyclic existence for the sake of others, which for, uh, you know, if you really understand the, 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 you know, the Buddhist worldview, remaining in cyclic existence is horrible. And to do it when you don't have to, you're doing it for the benefit of others. Yeah. Even when they remain in cyclic existence for the sake of others, why would the compassionate ones ever be upset? So they can do that, and they're not upset at all. Wow, that, and to think, to hear that verse, and you don't think, why can't I do that now? I'm a failure. You think, wow, I'm capable of doing that in the future. If I practice well over time, however long it takes, it doesn't matter. But if I continue to practice over time, I'll be able to do that in the future. Isn't that amazing that somebody could do that? I mean, to me, it doesn't have to be me that does it. It's just just that anybody can do that. It's just amazing. And, of course, if somebody else can do it, and I have the recipe book right here, then that means that I can do that too. Not tomorrow. Probably not this life. Highly unlikely in this life. Probably not next life. Who knows when it'll happen. But it is possible. And if I, I put, if I slowly accumulate the causes and conditions, that will happy. That will happen. And so that is a reason to be happy. Yeah. When you have this long-term view, then, you know, and you, you see what you are capable of, of slowly developing, then it's amazing. And your mind is very joyful. Yeah. Whereas when we only look short time and we, compare ourselves to others and we expect ourselves to have attained something, then we're 
always going to be kind of miserable. So 29, due to the strength of the awakening mind, the bodhisattvas consume their previous transgressions and harvest oceans of merit. Hence, they are said to excel Vishravakas. Okay, so what enables us to do this? To be like the compassionate ones who would never be upset staying in samsara for the benefit of others. What is it that enables that? The bodhicitta. Okay, and so due to that bodhicitta, the bodhisattvas consume their previous transgressions. So remember chapter one? The benefits of bodhicitta, what a powerful uh, force for purification of negativities it is. Yeah, so that's why the bodhisattvas can do this. Because with bodhicitta, you're working for the benefit of all sentient beings. And that's different than working for the benefit of one sentient being who happens to be me. (laughs) Yeah. So just that thought of bodhicitta makes what you do highly meaningful. And also, if we've, you know, since we've developed the compassion of a bodhisattva, when we look around and choose where it is best to put our energies, we can really make good decisions um, made with compassion for others so that we can do the things that are going to be of the greatest benefit for other living beings. Yeah. So it's, it's two things. It's bodhisattva, you know, bodhicitta that helps make whatever we do virtuous. But it's also bodhicitta and the great compassion that help us see where it is best for us to put our energy and have the, the greatest effect in what we give. Okay, so due to the strength of the awakening mind of the bodhicitta, the bodhisattvas consume their previous transgressions. So remember, you know, everything can be uh, purified. Yeah, this is Mahayana. Everything can be purified. And the harv- and harvest oceans of merit. So bodhisattvas can create these oceans of merit. Hence, they are said to excel the shravakas. So the shravakas, you know, um, that's the Sanskrit term for the hearers or, or uh, listeners, those who hear the Buddha's teachings and sometimes repeat it, but do not always practice the full extent of the teachings. Um, so those are, are the people who will attain our hardship. Yeah, those people realize, yeah, the the arhats realize the same emptiness that the bodhisattva, that the Buddhas realize. Yeah, and that the, uh, you know, starting with the path of seeing that the Arya bodhisattvas realize, they realize the same emptiness. Yeah, but what, what differentiates them from the Shravakas? is the bodhicitta. And so the the incredible amount of merit they're creating by by practicing with bodhicitta. 
And that merit is what supports the realization of emptiness so that you can, the bodhisattvas can overcome not only the afflictive obscurations, but also the cognitive obscurations. Okay. The shravakas cannot overcome the, 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 uh, Cognitive obscurations. They have the same realization of emptiness, but the mind is not powerful enough to use that realization to overcome the cognitive obscurations. The way we get the mind powerful enough is through the accumulation of merit. And that's done through bodhicitta, you know. And so that's, you know, the real distinguishing factor. Uh, at the end of the path between the arhats and the, um, or I should say the Shravaka arhats and the, the Buddha. The Buddha is also considered an arhat. Okay. So, questions, comments? Sometimes I get mixed up between um, trying to be humble and then under downplaying my capabilities. Because I feel like if I say, oh, you know, awakening is possible in this life, then another voice is like, who are you? Why don't you get a reality check? And so this, sometimes I have trouble distinguishing what's a realistic assessment Hmm. than what's um, this kind of misguided attempt to be humble. Okay. So here we have, there's things to distinguish. It's a very good question. What's the difference between self confidence and arrogance and what's the difference between humility and um lack of confidence yeah those two things so there you know because it's very easy to get them mixed up in our practice so the conclusion i've come to is when you can correctly assess, or, you know, or, or should I say this? It's not an on and off light switch. The more you can correctly assess what, uh, your faults are and what your talents are, the more you can correctly assess kind of where you're at and what you're capable of doing at one particular time and what you're not capable of doing at that time. The more we, we are capable of doing that, the more we can have a realistic self-confidence. Okay? So a realistic self-confidence knows what we're capable of doing now and knows what we're not capable of doing now. You know? When we don't have a realistic sense of of, of ourselves, then if we're suffering from low self-esteem, how do we remedy that? By becoming arrogant. Okay? I mean, we build ourselves up in a totally unrealistic way because we don't really believe in ourselves. And this is the thing to look at when you see people, either individuals you know or you look at 
some of the politicians or different people that are in the public eye, the ones who are bragging about themselves are the people who don't really believe in themselves. Yeah. And how, how do you cover it up? You paint this facade of, I am fantastic. And you, you know, you can, you lie about what you, you know, yeah, you do all of this. Okay. We know the routine. <laughs> we see it. Yeah. If you have a correct uh, way of evaluating, you know, what, what we're capable of doing, what we're not capable of doing at this moment, you know, and we know that we can improve in the future slowly. Yeah. Then we have no need to make ourselves look big because we have the confidence that we can improve and we don't have the discouragement that comes with expecting ourselves to be more than we are at this very moment. Okay. So when we really have self-confidence, we don't need to impress others in the hopes that if they think we're wonderful, it means we're wonderful. Because you see how, how it goes together? When we can't evaluate ourselves correctly, we look to other people to tell us who we are. And so if we can impress those people with how wonderful we are, they will tell us, you're so good, you're so rich, you're so talented, you're so beautiful, you're so this, you're so that. We love you, you're fantastic. And because we don't believe in ourselves, if other people think we're wonderful and think we're powerful and gorgeous and rich and whatever it is, then we can believe in ourselves. Not because we can actually assess ourselves, but because other people, we're relying on other people to tell us who we are. Yeah? And that doesn't work so well because not everybody is willing to play that game. And not everybody sees us. You know, we, I mean, we put on this facade. It's the Wizard of Oz facade. And some people believe the Wizard of Oz, you know. And some people are Toto, the little dog that pulls away the curtain and says, you know, you're a big bunch of hot air. <laughs> you know, you're just some little guy with a lot of machinery trying to make yourself look big. So, you know, when you have real self-confidence, you don't need to make yourself look big to other people because you're not relying on other people to tell you who you are. You can look inside and see, oh, I have these good qualities. That's great. Other qualities, not, I'm not very, <laughs> I don't have those so well, but you know, I can develop them, and I have these qualities that I can use right now to benefit people. And so then we aren't reliant on other people to praise us and tell us who we are. And when people criticize us, 
we don't, you know, get depressed because we know how to correctly evaluate ourselves. Okay? So that's why you see, you know, and the example, the the story I keep telling about this one is um, His Holiness at a conference in Irvine, California, the year that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I can't remember what year that was. But anyway, um, it was a while ago. And at, he was also attending uh, some conference in Irvine where he was the expert of the experts on the panel. And somebody asked a question. And in front of a big audience, His Holiness said, I don't know. And the room was silent. The expert said three words that an expert never says. I don't know. Yeah. But why could His Holiness say that? Because he's not, he doesn't need other people thinking he's wonderful. Yeah. Why does, you know who I'm talking about, need to boast so much? Because there's a lot of confusion and lack of self-confidence inside. Yeah. So the people who act arrogant are the real, they need a lot of compassion. Yeah. And compassion isn't you're so wonderful, you're so this, you know. That's not how a good display of compassion for those people. But you see, you know, because you know the story that I tell about um, the master at Foquan Shan who organized this whole thing uh, and, a, and a pilgrimage at the end and then was talking about his disciples who helped organize it and praised two of them and then completely trashed one monk, you know. This monk's so lazy. He was in charge of this and that. He didn't do it. Why could he do that? That monk was the real practitioner. Yeah, because the master knew that that monk wasn't relying on the master's praise to know who he was. Yeah, He could evaluate himself. He could own his own mistakes. He knew what he did that was okay. So it's kind of, you know, a good example of how Dharma practice is usually the opposite of what our ego mind does. Well, not usually, always. Yeah? Okay. Any other questions, comments? Okay. So, you know, what this is pointing to is when when we don't feel good about ourselves, to try and evaluate ourselves accurately. What are my talents and good qualities? And what are my faults? But remember, my faults are not who I am. They are not my identity. Yeah. 
and my good qualities, how wonderful I have them, but they're also not my identity, so I'm not going to get arrogant about them. Yeah. And to do that similar process when we receive praise. And then, then our mind has the ability to, to stay, you know, more and more equanimous no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we build up the, the inner strength to be bodhisattvas. Yeah. We think bodhisattvas don't get criticized. Wrong. Wrong. Yeah, they get criticized a lot. Because people don't, ordinary people don't understand what in the world they're doing. Yeah, but the criticism doesn't phase them because they have that ability to evaluate themselves. <laughs> 